Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm joined by my friend, colleague, John Kaplan, also known as Cap. Cap, we have a very special guest today. Somebody I think you know. This person's been CRO at Cyber Reason, Avexa, which was acquired by RSA, and Fuse. He's also held sales leadership roles at Blade Logic and BMC. And he's currently president at Lacework, who recently got a round of funding with a company valuation of $8.3 billion. Yes, that's a B. Please welcome Andy Byron, Cap. Andy, great to see you, dude. Great to see you. How are you? Great. I'm doing great, Cap. Good to, good to be here. Uh, good to spend some time with two legends, uh, <laughs> Mac and Cap. So doing great. In our own minds, at least. Yeah. <laughs> hey, buddy. Um, I'm really ecstatic to have you on the podcast. And congratulations, on the lace work funding valuation and great success. And I, I think this is a great place for us to kind of dive in. You've done such an unbelievable job of scaling sales forces and you've done it again at, at lace work. Um, could you kind of just give us, you know, your insights on some of the challenges and some of the critical aspects of, scale in a sales organization of which you do so well? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it guys stems from what is the philosophy of, of the company, right? From the investment strategy to the executive team, to the CEO, to the market, to the product fit, you know, a lot of that flows into, um, how you're going to scale, a sales organization and, and all the inputs around the sales organization to make sure that they're successful. Um, and there's a few things that when I think about that, that are kind of in the tangible bucket and then the intangible bucket in the intangible bucket. Those are things that at least I think I, I can't really control, right? There has to be a huge market, the product has to be uniquely differentiated and the timing of the market has to be there, which is really hard to, to do. And then if those things line up, then there's the tangible bucket, right? Which is what's the investment strategy? What's the strategy of the company? Does it align with building out a sales force? And then in the sales force, um, how are you going to kind of, grow the sales team? What markets do you go after first? Uh, what customers do you go after? What's the messaging? Who's the competition? And then when that's all kind of lined out, 
then I think you have a clear strategy on how you want to grow and what the growth rate looks like. And, you know, I've had an experiences where I've done that well and not so well. Right. And I've taken both of them and tried to figure it out. How do I apply both experiences to lace work in particular? And um, I think, you know, all those uncontrollable and controllable factors go into how you build uh, and scale a great sales team. Yeah. Hey, Andy. So one of the things I know you've done a really great job at, at lace work and scaling first, you've figured out, you know, who the ideal customer profile was and then, really early on you decided, okay, in order to go call on those ideal customers, then what I need to do is get the right messaging and also get the salespeople because you have to start somewhere before you were scaling and get the right salespeople that could, you know, carry that message and they were knowledgeable in how to sell enterprise software. Can you talk a little bit about defining the ICP, making sure you get the right people and and getting the whole thing going. Yeah, absolutely, Mac. And that was um, something that we did like first here at, at, at Lacework. I think um, the easiest thing to do is just say, all right, we're going to go call on Bank of America, right? Because that's what every company wants to go do. Right. And, and I've done that too, right? And, and, uh, and what we decided to do here, though, based on kind of some of my experiences was really define what companies had the highest propensity to buy from us. And then based off of that, we would define our ideal customer profile. And then that would drive everything around the hiring profile, the messaging, the marketing, where we're going to hire first, order of priorities of second and third markets we're going to go into. And what we landed on was an ideal customer profile that um, was was really a great fit for our product. So it wasn't really an educational sale so much either. We can go in and have a great conversation and and the the buyer would understand pretty quickly. And um, so when you peel that back, it's like, well, what means the most at that point? It's pipeline generation, which means the most at any point. But we decided that we wanted to go and really hire a profile of a salesperson that um, could could go and pipeline generate in greenfield opportunities because we only had 28 customers at the time. Nobody knew who Lacework was and were highly coachable around messaging. So they could go into these companies that um, were our ideal customer profiles and have a really concise value-based message where the prospect would take a meeting. And that's all we were looking for. It is still all we're looking for right now, but that's all we were looking for at the time. But peeling this back a little bit, a lot of companies, like you said, they just start when they're starting out, you know, they get a couple customers. And then what they start to do is they start to just hire sales reps in all the major cities across the U.S., And what you're saying you did is you went and built an ideal customer profile, figured out where are the majority of these customers in those cities, and then only went and started hiring in those cities as you gained momentum before you start going into other cities that might not be your first choice, but maybe your second, maybe even your third choice, right? So that's how you started to get the thing to scale. It is. Yeah, it is, uh, Mac. And it also, that takes a lot of discipline too, because when you see a great salesperson, 
and they're a quote unquote great athlete, but they're in a territory where there's no customers in our ideal customer profile, it's really hard to say no. And it's not about that person either because they have a great profile and a great background, but we were so hyper-focused and still are on making sure we hire people in the territories with large um, concentrations of our ideal co- customer profile. Yeah. So hey, Andy, so speaking important. of that, how is that balancing <clears throat> such a great point on scaling an organization, putting people in geographies where ideal customer profile accounts are, how has that thinking changed or morphed a little bit with the pandemic and so much remote selling and, and um, uh, digital selling or Zoom selling or what have you? What, what, what has, has there been any changes in that? A lot of people have been asking me that question. Are territories still geographic territories, still geographic territories? So, um, Cap, we've stuck with our initial kind of uh, philosophy on we're going to hire, even during the pandemic, um, salespeople in the territories where our ICP customers are located. Because the, the view was longer term, when we're out of the pandemic, customers are actually going to want to see salespeople again, right? And it's really hard, I think, to unwind our view was it would be really hard to unwind a, a very distributed sales team um, that were not located in the geographies that our ideal customer profile uh, was located in. So we, we, we have not actually changed um, our original view of where we're going to hire people. Smart. La- last question I have on the um, um, ideal customer profile Talk to me a little bit about the collaboration and the um, being proactive. So I see some CROs that have a point of view and they know what needs to be done, but they have to do it in the context of the leadership team. They got either a technical founder who may or may not know how to scale a sales organization. Most times uh, that's why they hire people like you with great experience to do that. Walk us through. It's either like I've seen, it's either something that's being done to a CRO or it's something that a CRO is doing, but they understand the principles of collaboration and being proactive. Could you give us your experience with that? Yeah, absolutely, Cap. And, and I've had um, some great experiences and I've, I've frankly had some not, not so great experiences, right? And I think when you think about a CRO's role, it's, it's so hard because you're navigating a market, a sales team, scaling the company, hitting the number. But then also part of the job a lot of people don't talk about, guys, and, and you, you both, you know this really well, is you also have to set expectations and navigate with your constituents on the executive team, the board, the CEO. And um, in my experience, and this is what got me excited about coming, coming to where I am now at, at Lacework, in my experience, if there's not alignment on the fact that there's going to be a clear strategy on how to go and capture market share that can change over time. Right. Maybe over time and 
in the future that strategy changes. But for the initial part of the company to go from you know zero to whatever that defined number is, there's a clear strategy on it's going to be a direct sales strategy. It's going to be a channel sales strategy, whatever it is. If there's not alignment there and you have um, CEOs who don't have the experience and frankly, patience either to stick with that strategy, um, it becomes really hard uh, for any CRO to navigate that environment because it, there's, it's always thrashing left and right in short periods of time. And the reality is, at least my point of view, is that when you're working for a small company and you decide to go to a, a small private company, there has to be patience and there has to be conviction that the strategy that you set out with in terms of how you're going to go grab market share, that strategy is going to be the long-term strategy. And I think um, that's kind of point one cap on, you know, just, just communicating and navigating around uh, 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 as a CRO's job. I think when you have an executive team that's aligned, right, and has patience and frankly has the ability to evolve over time and just kind of say, all right, what's working and what's not, and it's an open line of communication, but that strategy doesn't change, that's when you see companies that win. And, um, you know, that's here at Lacework as an example you know, if you look at our investment strategy from comp a company like Sutter Hill, it's very clear. Look at like pure storage, big win. Snowflake, everybody knows about that win. Lacework looks like it's going to be a big win too. The investment strategy is clear on how they're going to go to market. Then you look at, you know, Max on the board of these companies, which is, you know, as my mentor here, he's like, these are the strategies that we're going to take. But over time, are you adding more to the strategy or tweaking the strategy? But again, it's like clear. Then our CEOs here, specifically Dave uh, Hatfield, Dave's phenomenal because for me, it's great. He's been in my shoes before, right? And, he, and he's not a founding CEO. So he doesn't have that, um, I'd just say like affinity for the product that he built, so every decision we make is very clear. It's very black and white. Um, sometimes I like the decision. Sometimes I don't, but it doesn't matter because it's all in, in, in the strategy. And then that line of communication kind of flows down to the entire organization where they seem complete alignment. And I think in this type of role here as a CRO, it's clear because there's alignment from the top all the way through the best seller in the company or the newest seller in the company. Yeah. So that's how I view it. That's really key, Andy, because um, see a lot of times where um, you see a tech founder and they believe that everybody, let's say everybody's going to buy their baby. Right. And eventually everybody might buy their baby, but in the beginning, when you're trying to get the company off the ground, trying to find product market fit, you have to be very smart like you were about developing an ideal customer profile where your differentiators really map to the pain that the customer has so you can actually solve those pains. So I've seen that as a big problem where they don't want to go, they believe like 
you, to your point earlier, let's go call immediately on Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, those types of companies. And they waste a lot of time and they spend a lot of money, burning a lot of money to before they eventually figure out, oh, that was the wrong strategy, right? And now they try to self-correct, but sometimes it's too late. The other thing I've seen in your alignment point where everybody's aligned is sometimes I've seen where it's a brand new CEO and they're influenced by venture capitalists who never have ever scaled the sales force themselves, but they saw it happen at company A. So they believe what happened at company A can be duplicated and cookie cuttered into company B. And it might be a different product in a different market calling on different personas with different messaging and different price points, and it just doesn't work. And they're heavily influenced. So then maybe the first time CEO has a first time CRO and he's not really, doesn't really have conviction, he or she doesn't have conviction around how you really need to go obtain product market fit. And they're listening to the venture capitalist who's telling the CEO what to do, who's telling the CRO what to do. Another disaster. I've seen that thing happen also. Yeah. So that alignment that you're talking about is really, really key. So, but Andy, you've been in, you know, a number of sales leadership roles, you know, different companies, some highly successful, others that might be like hanging on. Yep. You know, are there any thing that you feel like through those experiences, here's one, two, three, or four things that I've learned that I just know this, this is, this is the right way to do things. Yeah, I think, um, there are, there's a lot. It's, 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 uh, to, to boil it down to, to two or three is, is tough, but, but I've, I've given it a lot. How about what not to do? How about what not to do? Right. So, Look, I think the first thing, John, is is to what to do is make a decision on what market you're going after, because you can't be everything to everybody. The second thing is have an open mind to evolve, right? And and evolving doesn't just mean with the market or with the sales team yourself too. You have to have an open mind to evolve as things change. I mean. Who would have thought two 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 and a half years ago we were going to be in a pandemic, right? So you have to have an open mindset and continue to evolve and, and evolve yourself. Good point. I think for sure the third thing that resonates with me the most is surround yourself with great people that have the same desired outcome in mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and are constantly going to challenge each other, support each other and push each other to get there with good intentions. And those are probably the three biggest things that, that I've learned over the course of my career. Yeah. Hey, Andy, let me ask, let me ask just a quick question on, um, in the mix of that, something I've seen you do just really well in scaling. A lot of times when I'm talking to CROs, I'm looking for, the math behind the scale. And when it's not there, it's very scary to me because when you scale without having 
uh, an aligned approach, financial approach behind quota months and and that type of stuff. When math isn't part of the discussion, I know there's a lot of other things that are involved, but when math is not in part of part of the discussion, you know, it's like what they, what do they say? Every success in a company has a thousand mothers and fathers, and every failure is like an orphan. Nobody owns it. And it's like, yeah. it's like when I think about this, can you kind of give us, I think you've just done such a great job in the places you've been really focusing on those quota months and, and scaling and making sure you're just not burning through cash with, with, you know, either the wrong people or the wrong timing. Do you have a point of view on that? I yeah, yeah, I do cap. Uh, and, uh, and I learned it from the, the, the other gentleman here on the phone, uh, Me too. Uh, Max. So, so, you know, it, mo- most sales leaders, um, look at sales as more of an art form, which it is right. It, it's part art, uh, part science, the sales leaders that can really boil down the decisions they make or don't make into more of a science fact-based decision process, they're, they're more successful over time. Right. Um, And that's hard to do, especially in the case of Lacework. When, when I joined the company, we had less than 40 employees, less than 28 customers, and we were doing, you know, less than a million in ACV. So there wasn't a lot of facts here to like go figure things out around, but if you lay the right foundation up front in terms of what's your hiring profile, right? And that could change over time, but what are you, what are you hiring to? Um, the second is when you bring somebody into the company, how are you going to get them up to speed in a way that feeds a productivity model, right? Mm-hmm. And that productivity model is when you hire somebody by a certain date, at what point are they going to be successful and start selling? Um, and then how's the pipeline start to flow into that productivity model? So you have an early warning system if somebody's going to be successful or somebody needs help. And I don't like to use the word or not, right? I think it's somebody's going to be successful or when somebody needs help because the or not uh, successful in my experience, and it's a learned experience, means that as a sales leader, you're just taking the easy road, right? If you, if you believed you hired the right person up front based on the profile and the interview process and, you know, all the work you've done up front, it's, it's your job as a leader to make that person, person successful, Absolutely. right? So, Absolutely. Yeah, Mac. And when I, start to look at pipeline. And I was just in a call this morning on, on pipeline reviews. You know, the easy thing to do is say, well, Sally stinks because she's not generating pipeline. Well, that's not the case, right? Cause would we hire Sally again? Yes, we would. Okay. Well, what are we doing to make sure that that early warning system is in Sally's favor now? Right? So pipeline metrics, you know, cap or something that, that I've really spent, a bunch of time on. I actually spend more time on pipeline metrics and they can vary depending on the product that you sell. But I spend more time on pipeline metrics than I do on the forecast. 
Yeah. Right. Everybody, but also, what are they doing to help Sally out so that she can right. generate pipeline? If you if you hired her because you believe she met your profile and she's failing, then really it's the responsibility of, to your point, the leader has not put enough time and effort into developing that person. So a lot of times, to your point, I find you ask them why Sally's failing. Oh, she's just, you know, they give you some blow off excuse nothing specific as to what's missing in her knowledge or what's missing in her skill set and what are they doing to help her get it right absolutely mac and you know i think to to the to the point here is that if you believed you hired the right person based on the profile that you've defined then it's up to you as a sales leadership team and as an entire organization to make sure Sally's successful. Now there's leading indicators that you put out there. Cause when Sally comes into the company, she wants to know, tell me what great looks like. Right. right. And we've defined what great looks like. And nobody's going to put more pressure on themselves and Sally to be great. But if Sally's not where she wants to be around what great looks like, Mac, to your point, it's the sales leader to get Sally there because right. if you can get Sally there, then cap, you beat the productivity model in yep. any sales driven organization has some sort of model that measures sales productivity, which we do here at least work. It's what drives our top line uh, growth. And man, if, when you can get Sally successful and you can repeat that time and time and time again, across these leading indicators, it becomes a really predictable business that yeah. you know, can outpace the rest of the market. And the flip side of that, Andy, is if Sally attrits, that's a killer to the productivity. So it's a killer to the bookings, uh, total bookings, because especially in enterprise sales where a typical ramp time is six months, if you hire Sally on January 1, let's say you're on a calendar fiscal year, and then you know you figure out by June, July that she's the wrong person by the time you know, she leaves and you go get a replacement, another six months has gone by. You basically, you lost an entire year of what At you least. thought was going to be a highly productive person, right? Yeah. So I used to get mad when people didn't have an answer for why Sally was failing and then Sally left on her own or they decided, okay, we want to get rid of Sally and kind of almost like forced her out. And I'd say, okay, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to go down to the bathroom. I need you to look in the mirror and come back and tell me, did you hire the right person and you failed at developing or you hired the wrong person? So you need, you know, you need to get better at recruiting. Come on, go down, look in the bathroom mirror and come back and tell me what, where you, where you failed. Cause it's to your point earlier, it's a failure on the point of the leader when Sally fails. Yeah. They recruited the wrong person or they recruited the right person and couldn't develop her. Yeah. Andy, are you sweating a little bit like I am? Have you had those, <laughs> my, convers my heart, <laughs> have you had those conversations with him before? <laughs> I was just, what Sorry, I was going to say, Cap, is I think I've had that conversation with Mac before, I, at too. least once. Me too. And then hey, you look to the whiteboard. Yeah. And, okay, now let's go through this. And then you're like, oh, no. 
That's yeah. a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. He would have been a great trial attorney. No doubt about it. <laughs> hey, I want to dive into some leadership stuff, but before, cause one of my favorite things about you is just your leadership style and, 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 and just your history there. But before we do that, I want to just touch on one thing. Cause I, I think your expertise here too would be very valuable. The engagement models that are out there today and the collaborative sale and the complex collaborative sale of what most technology companies are dealing with. It's not like the old days. If you hire somebody, they're going to take it from cradle to grave. We have customers that have multiple buyers. Uh, they have their own collaborative buy. We now have to contemplate the collaborative sale, who's doing what, when, and all these models that we're talking about all these productivity models, just walk us through some of your experience and some of the, and like people that are, you know, pressuring people to say, Hey, you know, they, we can sell it over the phone or we can sell it with an inside sales rep or we can. And as a CRO, you really have to have experience and a very powerful point of view. Would you mind just kind of talking about that? Like how you kind of view that? Yeah. Cap, I think, if you're selling a complex product with multiple buy, buying centers, it's impossible to sell it over the phone in a transactional way, right? Because they don't want to buy that way. And yeah. um, and if, if you take a step back and say, well, uh, let's not think about how we want to sell the product. Let's think about how the buyer is actually going to buy the Great. product. It's a totally different mindset. Great. Right? Most companies don't do that for various reasons, right? They said, no, we built this product this way and this is the way the market's going to buy it. Well, man, go take a look around and see how other companies that have similar products or in, even in your space selling these products. Great. And if you believe you're going to reinvent the buying process. Good luck. Great. Right? I, Great I, point. I, Great point. Yeah. I, 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 and I think that there's an opportunity for CROs to really take a look and say, well, what's the, how does the buyer want to make decisions and buy? And then most importantly, it actually get value out of the product. I think that's lost a lot too in sales organizations, they think about how does the customer want to buy the product, but connecting the get value out of the product is sometimes lost in many sales organizations. And when you approach it from that point of view, things get really complex, right? Because there's multiple buying centers. Some, some of those buying centers are going to have different requirements. Some of them are going to look at the product differently. And ultimately, you have to align your sales cycle to how the buyer wants to evaluate and buy and get value out of products. And that's at least work as an example. We've done that here. We have an eight-step sales process um, that we actually don't call a sales process. We call it the customer engagement model because that's what the customer wants to hear. Right. And in the customer engagement model, <clears throat> um, we have... Uh, multiple people involved from our side that are going to add value in terms of how our product differentiates itself, how our product aligns to the customer's initiatives, how our product's going to add value to their 
desired outcomes. And then ultimately, we want to prove that in a proof of concept. And when you put that all into um, a sales process or a customer uh, buying journey, you can't really do that with a junior salesperson trying to sell it over the phone. Mm. And, um, you know, that that's kind of how, how I've, pers- you know, generally approached selling and building sales organizations. I look at it from the outside in, not the inside out Great. in terms of how the, how the customer actually wants to buy my product. Um, and I, I never want to reinvent the wheel, right? Like in, in the case of, of where, where I am now at Lacework, there's a bunch of companies that have been successful companies that built big businesses that have trained the buyer how to buy the product. I would never want to go against that. I just want to show the buyer that I have a much different product with a more value add uh, outcome than what they currently potentially have. Great insights. Awesome. Awesome. So Johnny, take us down the, the, one of the things we're so excited to have Andy here is really just his, his kind of just his leadership acumen and his, his presence, walk us down that kind of leadership trail, will you? So Andy, like, you know, let's, let's, uh, so you're a pretty decent athlete. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, he's chuckling. What's up with that? That was great. I'm just teasing him. That's all. So you're even, you're a good baseball player. You actually were drafted by like St. Louis Cardinals. And I always wonder like from those times during your athletic experiences, have any of those translated in any way shape or form into selling sales leadership your sales career any of that andy yeah look athletics you know really like a lot of people that played athletics it kind of defined who who i was at an early age right because when i was you know a kid i i wasn't really into school Right. That 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 didn't excite me. And I needed to find a way where I could, you know, I I could feel confident and really feel like I was making a difference. And for me, that was on the athletic field. And I think the one thing about athletics that resonates into what I do today is the amount of work you put into it. Generally, you get out of it. Right. right. And, right. and, at, and it's, and in sales, it's very, it's, it's very applicable, right? The amount of work you put into the job and it has to be smart work generally can dictate the success or, or success or not success that you have. Right. So, right. Um, and in order to do that, you have to be incredibly structured. You have to have a plan, right? You have to know who your competition is. You have to want to make a difference. You have to have a great team around you, right? So I think, you know, um, athletics is very applicable to sales. And that's generally why I think, you know, both of you guys played athletics growing up. And so did a lot of other people that have been really successful in sales. Um, And I think that's why, you know, great, great athletes do make great salespeople. Uh, yeah. And for me, that resonates. And it also goes back to like um, recruiting, like people that were good athletes know that you have to develop, you have to know the game. And if you know the game really well, whatever that game is, now you have to develop the skills 
And the skills take the longest amount of time to develop. And there's, and the more you think you are, are gaining the skill, the more you realize you don't have, there's more to go. And then towards the end, when you've really started to even refine a skill, then you realize it's those little subtleties of the skill. <laughs> the, the extra you know, inch is going to take me a really long time to continue to develop that skill, right? So, and that's the same in selling. Like, it's, it's a skill set that you have to decide if I'm going to be really great, if I'm going to be one of the best, then I really need to not only have knowledge of the game, but I need to work on my skills constantly, right? Yeah. And well, Mac, one of the things that, um, I, I, I took from you a long time ago was focus on the fundamentals, right? If you look at any great athlete, they're not out there doing, you know, 50 different things. They're out there focusing on three or four. Cause if you know, if you do those three or four things the right way, right. they're that's the winning formula, right? Yeah. It's not, you know, doing the triple Lindy. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it's, the it's not doing the Hail Mary pass at the end of the game, oh. hoping it's not taking a half court shot in basketball. It's, it's knowing how to master the fundamentals. That's what's yeah. really key to anything. It's, just, it's the same, same thing in sales. Same you know, thing the other sales. thing I think that's really relevant right now as it relates to like a background in athletics or team sports or mm-hmm. team environments, like if, if you're a musician or you're part of a uh, a, a troop of characters or, or what have you is that I found that those people that have a history of performing in a team environment, they're individuals and they are accountable at the individual level, but they also have an experience of working in an ecosystem. And I'm talking about like technology sales for me today, just looking at the, com- the complexity of customers buying, uh, like you said, Andy, the engagement models, they're collaborative. They're, it's an ecosystem. One can't exist without the other. Each person has to do their job, but the entire customer journey is part of this experience that gets, that gets created. I found that there's a great, a great connection, even more so today than there was back in the day. Um, of those team skill sets, you have to understand who's playing in the sandbox and you got to play well with them. I mean, you, you, you no, just have I to. Think, I think it's that. And it's also the fact that if you're hiring the right people, these A players that um, are highly motivated to succeed, then what I found is when I'm surrounded by A players and I think that I'm an A player, I look to my left as an A player. I look to my right as an A player. They have certain skills that I, that I don't have and I need to get. And that motivates me even further to try to get those, that skill set or get that knowledge yeah. to try to get. It's not only that I'm collaborating with this team, I'm feeding off of the team. I'm feeding off of the other A players on the team, if that makes Versus- sense. You look to the left of you and you see a C player. You look to the right of you and you see a C player and you realize you're the A player and you just realize, you know, the, the place is just going to suck the life out of you. I think Nick Saban. You're on the wrong team. Yeah, Saban said it like uh, 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 A players can't stand uh, mediocre players and mediocre players can't stand A players. And, 
it's not an indictment anywhere. It's just like that's the the a players like to look around and 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 see that there's people that are going to raise and elevate their game. It goes to recruiting where the that the other saying is A's recruit A's and B's recruit C's. Yeah. Wow, that's that's good, dude. Yeah. That's good. Hey Andy, um the when I first met you, um you were in Central Europe, I believe. I think I first met you when you were at BMC, and I met you over in Europe, and you were running Central Europe. Do you mind just giving our listeners, I mean, the, 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 how did you make a decision to go, you know, take an assignment like that? Um, what were the positives about being an international executive? What were some of the challenges? And then, you know, any insights that might help people considering doing the same thing. Yeah. So, um, so I was really fortunate to have, uh, to have that experience. Um, Mac called me up. I had, I had actually just moved to Chicago um, uh, at Blade Logic. I was really hungry to, to do whatever I could to, 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 to both your points, kind of look around and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm an A player and I can keep up with the, with the team that was there, that was a phenomenal leadership team at, at yeah, Blade was. Logic, as many of you know. And um, and I, 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 you know, I told Matt, hey, if you think I can help out and help the company, help you and help out my career, let me know where to go, Coach. Right? And uh, he's, you know, I I moved to Chicago for a small period of time to help help get the business going there. Um, and about, you know, less than a year later, I, I, uh, I got a call from Mac again. He's like, Hey, I have an opportunity to, uh, to head over to Germany. Uh, and at the time, um, I had a really young family who was, you know, both my kids were under the age of three and, um, we ended up moving over to Germany and it was just a fantastic experience. It was hard, right? You land in Germany. You, you you realize quickly the signs aren't in English. Uh, you didn't even know where to go get a hamburger if they had them. But um, you know, I um, I think the international experience is something that if any if anybody has an opportunity, um, I would highly recommend because it shows you just a different perspective of the world. Um, I, I don't think necessarily people buy differently. Right. But I think that different cultures and, and to create great relationships around the world and really just, you know, understand kind of how other parts of the world do business is something that's invaluable. You also create just an ex, just a great network. Right. So I've um, I still keep in touch with a lot of the people that, you know, I met over over in Europe, specifically in Germany and Switzerland at the time. And you know, that that international leadership, when I came back to the States, I think just gave me more knowledge um, than a lot of other people had to take the next step in my career. Well, especially as you become CRO. So there's a lot of people that are being made CRO these days, and they may not have even run North America, let alone right. run Europe or Asia. So you having that experience had to have paid off. It, it absolutely did. I, I you know, I, I, I think too that today you see a lot of CROs that are really early in their career, and and I'm still of the mindset you got to put your time in, uh, and and with time comes experience, and with experience comes knowledge. And uh, I, you know, at, at the time I, 
I was a big believer in that. A lot of that came back to just my my mindset in athletics too. I, I had seen that happen, and I knew that it, if I had an opportunity to go and move over to Europe, I was going to take it um, because it would pay off in the, in the long term. Yeah. Hey, Andy. These days, there's a lot of people, salespeople, trying to get into technology sales, or let's call it really software sales. And when I first met you, you were selling what, data center services. Could we yeah. call it? And then you had to, now you made the move to selling software. So you had to adapt your selling style or selling process from selling data center services to selling software. Can you, do you, can you remember back to some of the big changes that you had to adapt to? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Max. So there's a couple of things here. One is, I, I think if there wasn't a very prescriptive process in place, it's really hard to make any that transition, right? Because if you're asked to figure it out on your own without a playbook, and over time that playbook obviously, you know, was was driven by cap and force management too, which even refined it more. But I think that the first thing that that I really wanted to understand in my career when I made that transition was what's the playbook, right? Because just going back to sports, every great sports team has a playbook, right? And, right, right. and the, 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 the best athletes and the best coaches, they look at the playbook and they master the playbook. So the first thing I did is I looked at the playbook and I said, okay, I understand the playbook. The second thing I wanted to understand is what are the best performers on this team doing, right? Just back to sports, right? What What's the best performer on the team doing? Because I knew whatever that person was doing, I was going to do and do it better, right? right? So I wanted to understand, like, what's that person doing? And um, I really spent a lot of time understanding what that person was, group of people at the time were doing. And um, the last thing I, I, I really thought through is um, how, do, how do I make myself unique to a customer and to the organization. And, and this might sound, you know, uh, old school, but uniqueness for, for Andy Byron is outworking people, right? I, I really don't think that there's any, there's any substitute for that. And, you know, entering the, the, the Blade Logic days, that was a pretty intimidating place. Not only, you know, did you have, you know, the, the best sales leader, you know, in the world, which was known at the time running the shop, you had a CEO is very demanding and only ex wanted excellence there. And then when you looked around the room, it was all A plus players. Yeah. And I came into that organization not knowing how to spell software. Right. <laughs> right. So, so I, I had to get up to speed really quickly. And that for me translated into I'm just going to do a lot of homework in the off hours. And I'm just going to, you know, ultimately just make the sacrifice I need to, to go out work people to show that I can hang here. Yeah. And Andy, then you were, uh, one more question. Ahead, Johnny. Yeah. 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 Then you were like a first time, you know, um, at least in software, first time sales leader at Blade Logic. And now since then, you've obviously hired a lot of first time sales leaders and you've also promoted a lot of first-time sales leaders. As you think back on your experience in doing a lot of that, what do you think are some common mistakes that first-time sales leaders make? Well, or if you had to give just advice, hey, 
whoever you are out there, you're going to become a first time sales leader. Here's, you know, here's some things to do or don't do. First is it's, it's not about you anymore. Right. 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 So that's, uh, Hey, but you know, we can laugh about it, but that's a pretty big transition, right? It's not about you, right? It's about the team. It's about the team's performance and it's ultimately about the company's performance, right? And when you're a first-time sales leader, it's probably never been like that for you before, right? So you have to have a different mindset. It's not about right, because it's all about them, their accounts, when they got up in the morning, when they went to bed, who who they called on, all of that. It was all about them, and it was all about how much money they could earn. That's all. That's all it was about. Then they get a team. Uh oh, not about me anymore. Absolutely. I think the second thing in. Um, this is something, Cap, that, that really had a big impact on me early uh, during our force management trainings was um, what value are you adding? So not only is it not about you, then it's like, hey, Byron, what value are you adding to the team? It's like, whoa, whole, okay, now this is a totally different dimension, right? So as a first-time leader or first-time leader, it's not about you and then what value are you going to impart to the team? And then the third thing is, is how are you going to create a winning culture, right? Because mm-hmm. people are going to want to come work for you. People are going to want to, you know, generate pipeline. People are going to want to really inspect the forecast. If you're creating a winning culture, they're going to want to do those things. And I think as a first-time leader, any leader, but definitely a first-time leader, how are you going to inspire people to go win? Because that, when you do that and you have to do it through a playbook and I'm very, you know, process oriented. So there has to be a, a, a defined playbook to do it. But, you know, I, I think that's always something that was on the top of my mind. It still is. Right. But was at the time as a first time leader is, man, I, I better show the team that we can win here. Cause if not, they're probably going to lose confidence in me pretty quickly and you can go right back to sports on that one, right? The coaches that don't win, they're probably not in it for a long run. And right. uh, those are the things I, I would give any, any leader, but definitely a first-time leader, you know, some advice on. Well, the other thing that I, I've seen a lot is they, they become, they think that everybody that's working for them has the same skill set that they, they do. So then they believe that everybody should sell the way that they do. And they don't really look at it like the way that I've always said, thought about it is, you know, you get two parents and they have three kids and each kid is completely different, different skill set, different, you know, needs, wants, fears, insecurities, goals, all those types of things. And it's the same for the people that work for you. When you become a first time sales leader, you have to realize those people are completely different than me and they're all completely different on the team. And now what my job is, is to figure out their strengths and weaknesses, fears, insecurities, doubts, and how can I best develop these people just like I would if I was a parent and I had three different kids? How am I going to help develop those kids who are completely different and have different goals and different motivations? Yeah. So that's the point. I think a lot of first time sales leaders, in addition to the ones you pointed out where they just glaze right over that. hundred percent. I was in a, so to that point where I was in a, um, 
a leadership meeting last week with, with, with some of my leaders. And one of the things we really focused on was knowing your people. Yeah. Right. And it's not, it's not a checkbox exercise either. Like a lot of first time leaders be like, well, I know my people because they want to make a million dollars. I'm like, no man, like that's not, that's not knowing your people. And I think as a first time leader, just to get kind of like double click on that, it becomes a little awkward because you're like, well, I'm a first time leader. Usually these people were my peers. I never really had to have these conversations before. I'm like, well, what's driving you to work every day, right? What are you trying to accomplish long-term? And knowing your people, when you do that, that's super powerful because you know what's going to unlock the best of them every day too, for sure. Yeah. To your point where, well, I know, I know my people because they all want to make a million dollars or whatever their goal is. I, I have a classic example of that. I, there was a guy up in San Francisco, I mean, Seattle, that was managing a woman. And he said, I just simply can't motivate this woman. So he thought he tried everything because he thought that everybody's only motivated by money. But he never sat down to really understand who she was. And her husband was, you know, very, very, very wealthy. She didn't come to work every day to go make more money. She came to work every day to participate as a good teammate and go sell, you know, software to people to help solve their problems. So it was completely different than making money. She really didn't need to do that. And that's why he wasn't motivating her because he thought he tried everything, but he never got to know the person. Yeah. Hey, um, just before we get ready to, to wrap here, Andy, I've been dying to ask you this question about balance and the holy grail of balance. And I've had the pleasure of meeting you at a very early in your career and watching your career and looking at the assignments and the, you never took any easy roles and all of them were pressure cookers and you just, you really excelled at all of them. And the things that I've enjoyed about our relationship is really talking about some of the ways that you've been, you know, able to balance, you know, mentally, physically, staying healthy. It's like people don't really talk about that, but there is, you know, you, you have to protect yourself from just burning out. I've seen so many great talents. You know, you just said one of your biggest attributes, characteristics is you're going to outwork everybody and your biggest strength can become your biggest weakness. And uh, any parting thoughts for those people that are looking at your career and looking at the, you know, the, the performance and any parting words of wisdom around how to, you know, mind, body and spirit type of thing of holding it all together. Yeah. So cap that, that didn't mean much to me earlier in my career. Right. And, um, it, it takes, you know, uh, in my, in my experience, it takes, it takes, you know, some really hard times to really reflect back and say, well, man, am I giving everything I can to not just work, but to myself and to others that, that support me. Um, and when you have those three, three things really working for you, um, that, you know, that brings out the best in you, which by definition can bring out the best in everybody else. When one of those is lacking, everybody else can see it. Um, and so the only parting, parting kind of, piece of advice is 
it's not, it's, it's not only about outworking people. And I think in this industry, you can get chewed up. I almost did, right, uh, several times in my career. And uh, you really have to reflect back and, and take a step back and say, hey, how can I do things differently? Because your actions as a leader, they impact many other people, uh, not just inside the company, but outside the company. And, you know, having those three areas of your life working, you know, at, at a high level all the time, that takes a lot of work. Um, but when one's not working at a high level, the, the other two are probably going to really suffer too. And as a result, you're probably not going to be, be the best at what you can be every day. Mm. Mm. I know I've called you a few times and um, I remember one time I called you and you're like, Hey cap, can I call you back? I'm standing in a Creek. It was deeper than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And you were riding your bike. You might have been riding your bike with this bird here. Uh, and you went through <laughs> some creek in the wintertime. And I think biking and things like that have become good flow havens for you. Yeah. Yeah. I try to exercise every day. Uh, try to get, you know, some, some time outside of work, you know, uh, with, with myself and with, you know, other people that mean a lot to me every day. Awesome. We almost went in that time, though. Remember? We did. We was, did. It was, I think you it did. Was snowing, the lake was ice, and there was this little, we were on what we thought was a bike trail, but I don't think it really was a bike trail. And we were coming down, and there was water flowing that was coming out of the bottom of the lake, you know, underneath the ice. And um, we thought maybe it was like a couple inches. And we, when we went in, the whole front of the bike went down, and we were like, oh, shit, man. Yeah. We're hanging on here. And we, we finally got up and out of it without going down. But yeah. That was that's, actually, that's not the real story. I'll tell you the real story later. <laughs> that's Captain. what I thought. I thought oh, he was on. sitting up on the perch. <laughs> he was sitting up on a bridge asking you why you took the water route. Well, the real, the real story is this, Cap. Uh, uh, when I was a, a, a younger man, I thought I was invincible. One day, uh, Max like, well, let's go for a bike ride. And I'm like, okay, I can ride, I can ride bikes with Mac. No problem, man. That was a long day. That was a long weekend. Actually. I, it took me a while to recover from that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Hey brother. Um, just so many, uh, as we wrap here, so many golden nuggets. I just want to highlight a few of them. You started off talking about the importance of the um, ideal customer profile. Um, I loved your point about, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. It's really an outside-in approach. How your buyers buy will dictate the engagement, the customer engagement model that you put together. You talked about mastering the playbook. Um, and, and you talked about, you know, the difficulties in realizing it's not about you anymore when and you take that first and recruiting and, yeah, and, and recruiting, recruiting. And leadership. Yeah. What, what we love to do here, Andy, as we, as we wrap up, as we love to do these rapid fire questions. And so if you're up for it, I'll just kind of, I'll rapid fire some of these off to you. And uh, just the first thing that comes to your, comes to your mind helps the listeners just get a little bit closer to um, closer to Andy. Ready? Bring it on, man. Yeah. All right, brother. <laughs> What's an ideal day off of work for you? Uh, riding a bike. 
Awesome. Awesome. Favorite meal? Pizza. Well done. Pizza. So if you're going, you're going to the electric chair tonight and they give pizza. you one more meal, you're going to pizza. Kind of, <laughs> you don't look of, like pizza's your favorite meal, dude. Pizza. That's why. All I right. Like. What kind of pizza? What kind Stick of pizza? Stick to it. Uh, just plain. Plain? Cheese. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cheese. Nothing on it. No. All right. White pizza? No. Or red sauce? Red sauce with cheese. All right. All right. Favorite movie? Oof. The Natural. Oh. oh. Well done. Robert Redford. Best concert you've ever been to? Uh, Almond Brothers. Almond Brothers. Holy yeah, smokes, Johnny. Love that. Yeah. Hey, Andy, um, it's an absolute pleasure, you know, for you to thanks for joining us, dude. You're 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 uh you're an inspiration. I've really, really enjoyed uh knowing you over the years. And um I, I just wish you just unbelievable uh continued success and and really, really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, me too, Andy. Thanks so much for doing this. And I'm sure I'm really hoping that the audience out there is really listening to some of the lessons that Andy shared, which are really, really powerful. Maybe this podcast can help you from, you know, doing, making some of the same mistakes and, and, and using the lessons learned that Andy had to, to be more successful. Yeah. I hope so too. Yeah. I hope so too, guys. My pleasure. It was great catching up. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 